and welcome to Glittering Absurd. I'm Chris. If you're new here, welcome. Take a seat, get comfy. Okay, let me set the scene. I'm on the beach, um, so if you can hear a bit of wind or the odd child screaming in the background, and hopefully the ocean. You're welcome. It's a beautiful day today, um, the sun is shining. Uh, I needed to be by the sea today to listen back to today's episode um, mainly because it's quite an emotional one my guest in today's chat Felix White has written a book which potentially stupidly I finished reading literally moments before we, re- we recorded the interview I think I was still processing his words and I had done some tears you may also hear a very giddy version of me and quite a gushy one I'm not sorry for either of those things. I think you should just have a listen. So, enjoy. Hi, Felix. Uh, firstly, I mean, I spent the morning crying because I finished your book literally this morning. So, thanks for that. Oh, really? It's. I mean, it's such a beautiful book. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like, you should be. I hope. I hope you know. Well, you hopefully you already know that, but. I'm sure lots of people have already told you that, but it's truly an incredible book. And I hope you're really proud oh, that's so, of that. That's such a nice thing to hear. And um, thank you for making the effort to read it. it. Maybe it did take some people by surprise, I think, um, because the show that, the podcast I do called Tail Enders, which is about a love of cricket, is very flippant and silly. So mm. I was aware when I was writing it, yeah. God, I'm, I'm, I'm like writing a... Yeah self-analysis of unprocessed grief and uh, love which I yep. thought god are people going to be expecting a completely different book but in, in a way that's quite nice I think that that's happened I want to talk about that a bit more later but I, firstly I've got to do a little bit of an intro about you and then okay. we can kind of go into more <laughs> turd stuff okay. so today I'm joined by Felix White best known for playing in the band the Maccabees um, I mean that's certainly how I first heard about Felix and now one piece of the Tail Enders podcast Still a musician, creating scores for soundtracks, um, co-founder of the record label Yalla, and is also the author of an incredible autobiography slash cricket and Maccabees love letter slash a beautiful piece of writing about grief and loss and working out life in general. And <laughs> honoured to speak to you today, Felix. Thank you. Oh, Chris, it's such a nice thing to be speaking to you. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. So since this whole, you know, chat is about turds and how we've glittered them, I'd like you to introduce... <laughs> The turd that you're bringing to the table, please. Um, yeah, well, I thought a couple of things. I don't know, I'd be interested. To, it depends which way you want to take it, really, because um, when you got in touch with me, the first thing that actually sprung to mind, which isn't what the book's about, but I felt like I, I remember this feeling in the creative process in anything I've ever done. I don't know if um, you've ever mm-hmm. heard this, but uh, Ed from Radiohead actually years ago told me that this is the sequence of making anything. This is how you feel. And I thought it rang so true. One, when you come up with the idea, you're like, this is the best thing. This is going to change the world. This is unbelievable. My whole life's going to be different from this point on. Second thought is, I think it's still good, but it actually might need a bit of work. The third thought is, this Mm -hmm. is shit. The fourth one is, which is the worst bit, I'm shit. And the fifth one is, um, what's the fifth one? Then the fifth one is, um, I'm going to keep going. Sixth one is, 
it is what it is. I'm going to deal with it. And then the seventh one is how you fit, like how you feel after it's been put out. And so I felt like um, in terms of glittering a turd, it, I think in most creative processes, you will always get to that point where realistically, that's what you're doing. You think you're so tired of the thing you're doing. You think this is fucking, I hate this. So I'm not sure if I'm about to swear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're just sort of getting to the end point and hoping it and hoping it will feel good after the fact. Um, so I don't know if you mm-hmm. I don't know if you can relate to that. Yeah, I mean, like that's a very humbling experience as well. And I think that is how you stay humble is by thinking, I've been through absolute the depths of hell to get to where I am today. Yes. But in that process, I can be even more proud of myself because. I think if you're just so in love with everything that you've done all the way along the line, then how can you really truly be proud of what you've produced? Well, yeah, and it proves also proves that you're not insane, that you don't just think you're great all mm-hmm. the time, um, which is probably yeah. a good thing. And yeah, it's a relief. It's quite a relief when you realise you're not an absolute bellend. Yeah. <laughs> so well put. Yeah, that's really well ultimately, put. I think you can pontificate about life so much and I think ultimately it comes back to like, can you get through life not being a dickhead? Well then, great. Like, literally that's it. Um, yeah. Like, get through life being a pretty nice person, not being a dickhead. And I think sometimes that's enough because I think so much, I mean, so much about this, you know, what I talk about in terms of awful things that happen in life and how you've glittered them. Um, it comes back down to how you react to that situation and who you become out of the back of it. And ultimately, if it makes you a better person, great. But if it stops you from being less of a dickhead, even better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's that's success to me. But I, I mean, I mean, I thought as you're saying that, I feel like maybe that's not. I think mm. I feel like because you just read my book, I think the more the 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 bit deeper, yeah. bigger thing to say maybe that's got a bit more meat in the bone for what you're talking about is. Mm. Um, and I've done it yeah. decades later, worked out that this is what my head did. For people that haven't, many people won't have read my book. Um, my mum was very ill when I was young. She had multiple sclerosis and she, it, was, it got incrementally worse and worse and worse. And when she was 17, when I was 17, she was 46, uh, she died. And it sort of catapulted in my head. And this is, like I said, this is something that I can only tell you decades later, but I think when my mum was getting ill, the things that she couldn't give me anymore, um, like assurance, touch, love, validation for things, I found myself subconsciously as a teenager sort of going into the world and trying to sort of find it in big groups of people. You know, I got really into sport and music in finding those um, communities and finding places where you get versions of love and um, I think it really changed me in in a tangible way because that's that is what I ended up doing with my life really like that was like starting a band like forming a family and then you're going and playing to people every night if if it goes well where people are sort of telling you you're great or like clapping you and showing you love so it really sort of um, Mm -hmm. it softened a lot of that feeling for a long period of time and then also cricket which I fell into fell in love with you can put a lot of depth of feeling into cricket because it goes on for a long time there's a lot of failure and loss in it so you can articulate feelings that might be too painful personally for you to deal with 
project them yeah. onto the game. So I think to sort of try and sum that up in some sort of neat way, all the positive things that happened in my life and are happening are a result of that pretty traumatic experience at a formative stage. Like, as you know, of course, sometimes you don't, you wouldn't, you would always have the first one. Like I wouldn't, don't want it other than that. But I think um, the way that programmed me sort of set up all these like going out into the world and finding all these things that I don't think I would have done otherwise. So that is essentially the glitter where you've just f- described there. Um, I've just like summed it up. For you. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Um, so essentially, you know, when I knew we were going to have this chat and I'm so grateful we're having it, um, I thought, of course, from the outset that we were going to talk about the turd being your mum dying when you were 17, because that's such an incredibly traumatic thing to happen at such a young age. Um, but then you know, this is what I kind of love about this podcast is because there are so many themes that come out of people's life where they go, you might think that that was the worst thing that happened, but something else happened that made me realise that that wasn't the worst thing because that created something yes. magic. And I think that's that's why you can't ever take anything at face value. And that's why, I mean, that's why we're having this conversation today. So I kind of want to w- rewind a little bit. So when your mum first got ill what was happening in your life how old were you at the start obviously i read that you were really into the band eternal and i I (laughs) relate to that i think we're kind of similar age so like we grew up loving the same kind of music but you know you were just this kid and so a lot was happening at home and yeah who were you what was that eternal Eternal, uh, the power of a woman by eternal was the first thing i ever bought on tape why that appealed to an eight-year-old me or 10 year old me, I do not know, but um, I was, de- <laughs> but I can still see it as I, as I, as I say. I mean, why not that? It's well, so good. Exactly, why not that? I can still <laughs> see good. it now, like, as I, as I say it, them turning up on TV, like, all in leather. I can hear the song, I can see the mm. graphics of Top of the Pops. Um, <laughs> life changing moment. But, I, but, but by the time yeah. I'd seen, yeah, it was life changing moment. By the time I, I'd come across Eternal. I think my mum had already started to get ill. So when she, I think she was diagnosed and when I was really young, maybe like four, five, six, but we wouldn't have known about it. I got two younger brothers um, until it would start, had started to become obvious that that was happening. So at the start, she, it would, her MS would have just played out where she would have occasionally gone a little bit lost sight in her left eye. Or, or she, um, early days, like, needed a walking stick. So just tiny little things, like, oh, that's a bit weird type thing. And we would have been told, but it didn't seem like... Um, no, the thing with MS is you don't know how it's going to play out. So some people, for the first few years, you don't know whether it's going to be relapsing and you're going to live with it and it's going to be a nuisance but all right or secondary progressive, which is what my mum ended up happening, which is, like, a very aggressive form of it. So in those early days... There would have just been that flickering of like, oh, something's a little bit weird. And that's what's interesting about pop music and stuff, isn't it? Is because even humans are so like uh, malleable and like I, I, I'm fascinated by the idea that I would have something would have recognised something was odd. And then instead of like finding out about it, I would have just been like, right, I'm just going to get obsessed with Eternal <laughs> or like pop music, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. That's I, I love that. Yeah, so your other obsession was obviously cricket. So, I mean, tell me about your cricket cave. Well, cricket started <laughs> um, Cricket started because my grandpa... It used to be on terrestrial television, which it isn't anymore. 
and we used to drive to my grandparents, my mum's parents, every Sunday. And in the car, we'd listen to like Beatles and Van Morrison and whatever else. I was deeply in love with these this this music on the tapes in the car, but I didn't have a sort of visual aid for it. So when we got to my grandparents and my granddad would always be watching cricket, I kind of assumed that the cricketers were the Beatles or Van Morrison. So they both like, they sort of like merged <laughs> in my head. What was really fortunate for me was that that England cricket team of that time were like in such a beautiful way, like really rubbish. Like they lost all the time and they lost in situations where it was almost impossible to lose from so they became this sort of conduit or vehicle for me at that age to like pour suffering and a life experience into alongside the music and so as my mum was getting more and more ill without realizing it I'd be like deeply moved by the cricket but not, not conscious that it was probably not to do with the cricket at all. And um, the cricket cave eventually came about because I would find myself into my 20s after my mum had died and cricket had been taken away from terrestrial television. I'd find myself like trying to find cricket anywhere in the world and no one else would want to watch it. So I, so, I sort of developed this, mm-hmm. what I ended up calling a sad cricket cave where I would just spend hours on my own staring into the screen some subliminal part of me hoping that England lost so that I could um, share some communal feeling with people mm-hmm. um, so that's where the, the sad cricket cave yeah. came from really yeah yeah I mean I, I love reading the book like all the lengths that you would go to to access this moment with you and the telly and that cricket and the moments of like it's almost and obviously you write this in the book about how cricket actually allowed you to access the pain that somehow you weren't in a way allowed to feel about your mum's decline and her death um but could feel in the cricket and you and you I guess you saw the pain in all the cricketers faces and like what was happening out play out in front of you and feeling like oh my god these are the people that understand the pain that I'm also going through but you didn't realize that you were really going through it and that's a really succinct and articulate way of putting it that's exactly what was happening. And do you know what? I just always find that fascinating anyway, like with football or anything. That's just going to be a very obvious point, but it's not really about kicking the ball in the goal, is it? I think it's amazing how many people like put so much feeling into it. And those moments are so powerful because people have found a way to pour parts of their lives that might be difficult to say or connect with otherwise into that moment. And I think that's why it's so mm-hmm. powerful. And I, for me personally, I think that's what, yeah. after my mum's death, I think I was seeking out watching sport and hoping privately that the team I was sporting would lose because I knew that at the end of that, everyone would be like sharing that loss together like a funeral and it just sort of made me wonder how many yeah. people how many people feel like that how many people are putting passion into places for reasons like that and that's one of the interesting things about the book is that I've I've had um, quite a few people come up to me and like almost whisper it or on very on a down low on like Instagram DMs say I hope my team lose too and I never thought you were supposed to say it. So I thought it's kind of amazing. But like yeah. predominantly men as well, like being like, oh God, maybe that's what I do. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah. I mean, it's amazing that you have this reflection now, and obviously later on in life you finally seek therapy to kind of understand some of the feelings that you had and I just think it's so interesting that you gain that perspective and that reflection because as your mum was declining and everything was happening at home you know that you've got two brothers so your dad is single-handedly looking after these three little boys or now teenagers and caring for his wife at home and so it didn't seem like there was any time or space for you to be allowed to be sad. And so obviously you're gonna to have to try and find a way to release those feelings somewhere else. I mean, yeah, no, um, you've said in interviews and stuff before that it doesn't take a, like a, an amazing psychiatrist to figure that one out. But I do think it's glad that you've pointed that out because so many people go through their whole lives not realizing that unprocessed yeah. grief. And you fucking have. I don't know, I think it's just true. I've, I just feel like you have to, at some stage, you have to get real with yourself, don't you? And I think that became really interesting as I got older, it's like, I can't really pin down relationships, like partners, mm. or for long periods, like in, in an intimate way. I find it really, and that's when I still do, find it really hard to like, okay, we're gonna be living together. And for some reason, like where, where everyone else in my life was, doing that as if it was just nothing I find it so mm -hmm. so complicated to do that whereas I could just yeah. very easily without thinking about it go on, onto a stage or um, be sort of public and display a lot of feeling and so it made me feel like what's the correlation with that and what's happening in my brain the answer well I think the answer is that you just get you get tra you get traumatized from the pain of it so badly you don't want to go through it again, basically, I think. And you, so you you're, you find mm -hmm. ways. Are there other ways I can get this love? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which obviously the answer is no. Because mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> like the age-old story of <laughs> formers or whatever sports people trying to find it elsewhere and then eventually realising, oh, no, it, you just end up back where you were. And again, like really interestingly, so many people have 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 said to me since, but and I've never had that conversation, but since about reading the book that like oh they had a similar thing happen to them and they were always confused about why they couldn't have just a like inverted commas normal relationship where they just sort of like slipped into it without thinking too much or whatever i think had we not spoken today i would have been one of those people that would have slipped into germs and been like hey you're helping me actually oh, come really? to terms with some of the stuff that i haven't processed myself so um and i really fucking thought i had so you've opened another can of worms thanks for that but uh, you know and you you also say in it which i i mean that is that is the key moment that i kind of went oh my god yes is around sort of carrying that sort of badge of loss yeah, around yeah. and kind of helping you to be seen. And that, like you say in the book, her death kept you alive in the minds yeah. of others. I mean, my dad died when I was 20. And that is just an age where you are literally just in that sort of like, who am I? I'm nothing, really. I didn't really feel like I needed to be anything necessarily, but that still plagued me. But the fact that my dad died, <laughs> that was almost like, oh, well, there, there's something about me. There's <laughs> yeah. something interesting about me. Totally. It kind of <laughs> makes you special. And that's a dark yeah. thought, though, isn't it? Because you end up feeling like, oh, that, oh that's my God, thing. It is. <laughs> and uh. then I think the problem with that is, is that you don't realise at the time how natural it is to think that. And then years later, that becomes a guilt or a sort of darkness that can define you that for some reason you manipulated the grief in order for your own personal benefit or whatever. You can end up feeling really mm -hmm. 
bad about yourself about that. But actually, I think it's a really natural human instinct on reflection that you just you're you're trying to survive aren't you and you're working out how you move forward in life and everyone just like uses what's available to them I mean yeah I would have latched on to absolutely anything I was also in a relationship that I wasn't happy in and I thought oh all this loss and grief and pain is just like that is me I'm just gonna be that person (laughs) that just feels sad all the time but maybe I was just like a real emo kid as well that I just didn't really realize it can I just ask do you have to think because I have it now because I'm 37 now um but I have it still where I'll find myself engineering situations where I'm sad or unhappy and I've got like no reason to be and I don't even know that I feel that way and I just sort of take myself to that safe space of like oh I'm just going to be sad for a week does that happen to you ever? Well yes it certainly does but I wouldn't really say it's because of the loss of my dad because there's a hierarchy of shit in my life and he's definitely not at the top right (laughs) um so i but i yeah i totally get what you're saying in terms of like sometimes i need to understand feelings again so i will like i mean i guess if anything the easy thing for me to do is to go back to the day i was diagnosed with cancer yeah and like that you know feeling of the world falling apart is very easy to access um that's like that moment of trauma is etched into your every being yeah and i think that's okay i don't think that's necessarily feeling like oh i want to spiral right now so i want to be sad i think sometimes you just want to be reminded that you are still human and then you know you can move on from that and that's i think that's the good thing is like it doesn't last and you kind of go gosh i can have those awful feelings but also a good happy feeling the next day and i think that's that's the great thing about life, really, isn't it? Let's be honest. When you say you've got a hierarchy of shit, is that is that top of it? Yes, but not right. me dying necessarily. It's the effect, the impact of me dying, um, yeah. on people closest to me, like my twin sister. That that yeah. trumps me being diagnosed. I hear um, that. So you know, I'm just I just love the the turds in my life. It's, it's a hierarchy. Of turds. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of want to move on to the glittery bits of your life a little bit. And um, I love, mm. so obviously the Maccabees were formed in your friend's bedroom, Orlando's bedroom. Yes. When you were, obviously, yeah, it's still in your late teens, right? Correct, yeah. I didn't, I, I've loved the Maccabees and I, I actually didn't realise how they came about. So it's been so nice to read about that oh, as well. Oh, that's nice. And I particularly love that you got signed after a gig that you played at the Water Rats, is that right? Yeah, yeah. The Water Rats is such a scuzzy little bar. <laughs> yeah, but in my head, it, it's not a scuzzy venue. It's actually a very big deal because when you're in that, like it was when you're sort of when we were that age, all those venues, you know, even like Camden Barfly, it was like, wow, we're like headlining mm. Camden Barfly on a Friday night. Like all that stuff was like really um huge deals at the time but that's true we we went quite quickly when when I was about 17 and getting together from being in Lan's bedroom when I was sort of very good close mates with his brother and would be at their house every weekend and I would get uh, him and his brother would live at the top floors of his house their bedrooms and I get sent into Lan's room for Rizla occasionally and I once found Lan just with his guitar being like he had a guitar and he was like just playing the open string again and again and again. But I hope you wouldn't mind me saying, because he's 
unbelievable songwriter and musician and but at a time relatively hopelessly just going dong 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 so i walked in and like quite co- i'd been playing guitar or whatever i think my mum had just died this time i was like i'll show you some chords man and wrote him out like a tabs of chords and um that was the beginning sort of inadvertently of the maccabees really and um between then and like you say it was only about two or three years later really from normally being able to play anything at all apart from like the four chords I knew to getting a deal with fiction so it happened pretty quickly yeah but in that three years we were we were playing to no one in pubs like which is the thing yeah I kind of miss those days there's a lot of stuff in that book about there was so many things during that time you know you'd be playing shows and someone would get up on stage and say like I'm so sorry I need to take the drum kit because my mum's outside she says I've got to go now and they'd like dismantled a drum kit in the middle of your gig. It was like, that was what sort of happened at early Maccabees gigs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, and then that's the beauty of it. I, I love reading that sort of backstory of, um, because if people have only heard of Maccabees through something they, they might have found on Spotify, I think it's so good to like realise where some of your favourite bands really started. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I say Scuzzy Bar, but Water Rats for me is a very special place too, because... It's the first place, the first venue that we held, um, Copperfield, the oh, charity, really? obviously, that I set up. Um, first, first ever Festival gig. Oh, right. Um, we did it there, and like we had, like we had Norman Jay DJing and oh. Newton Faulkner played and stuff, and and like it was so special. And like now, so now we've been doing it in um, House of Vans, um, which is obviously a bigger venue and then sometimes mm. I think that we the production is so slick now and so amazing but I do I do love those days of thinking back to just the absolute chaos of yeah. where it all began yeah um, exactly yeah and really cherishing those moments no with it but but interesting you say that that's kind of um because Yala my label years later we end we've ended up putting on nights a bit like that really at Bermondsey Social Club where I'm always trying to, we've got these fucking massive cut-out letters that say Yalla that are constantly falling down. So I'm putting sellotape on the letters and sticking them back up on the walls in the middle of the night, which are very, like, that sort of idea. So it's those kind of gigs have kind of stayed close to me in some ways, yeah. Oh, uh, that's so fun. Again, yeah, I love reading that because when you were... When you're reapplying those yellow stickers, uh, those yellow <laughs> yeah. um, letters yeah. up to the wall, yeah. that would have been after. So I actually met you in um, 2011 at a festival called Beach Break Live, oh, right. which doesn't exist yeah, anymore. I, sort of remember I don't know that. if you remember was... playing there. I mean, you, yeah, more, but we were backstage just like haranguing anyone that would talk to us about boobs. And uh, me and my friend Jamie, who set the charity up with me, um, he. Uh, he was like, he obviously also a massive fan of you guys. And yeah, I've got this picture of us standing outside one of their sort of like trailer things where you guys got to hang out. Um, and my friend Jamie's holding this like big rubber duck and me just thinking this is the least rock and roll we could possibly get. And and thinking this is one of my favorite bands and all we can do right now is have this picture taken together and hold a rubber duck together. <laughs> and, uh, but, and, and, then read, and then reading in the book, like, you know, after you, obviously, the Mackey's Bees didn't exist anymore, you were that guy who was sticking letters up on the wall. And it's like, for me, that is, <laughs> that reminded me that the people that we adore the most are still just human beings and they 
do normal people stuff and actually that made me feel like we are on the same planet again and but you just happen to create incredible amazing music um so thank you that's right what what was the what's the rubber duck theme why why was rubber duck involved we were running this campaign called um copperfield in the shower yeah essentially and we were just kind of we kind of hijacked the showers at the festivals and stuff and kind of reminded people that it was an opportune moment to check your boobs and we were in the actual field we had a tent and we were um we were doing temporary tattoos we were sticking temporary tattoos on people's boobs or wherever they wanted them on their bodies and and that sort of thing so we're just talking to people about that and so we had all these props around the shower theme and we just took some of them backstage and you guys were were there at that opportune moment. What were we like? Were we friendly? Were we yeah. obviously? Yeah. That's nice. There's a lot of cyclical things in life, isn't there? Yeah. And yeah, fast forward ten years, and I'm fucking on my hands and knees, sticking up fucking letters at Bambi Social Club. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you say this in the book as well, and I, you know, maybe I'm banging on about the book too much, but I just loved it. It's fucking great. Um, everyone should read it. But um, essentially, what I liked is that you. You talk about that and how you liked being the nice guy that people might meet and being the nice guy, but having the safety that they also are totally (laughs) aware that you're in this massive band and you're also fucking super cool because that is reassuring for you because then you don't have to be anything other than this nice guy. Even hearing you say that, it's like, I can't believe I've dredged that out of my, from the depths of my guilty things that I, that I feel sort of sh- shameful about or like the d- deep part of my s- psyche but that's true I think that um when I when got kicked out when the band sort of ended I was a, a part of me was a little bit like repulsed at the idea of like oh god I was just this guy from a band being and coming from this position of power and being like so friendly to everyone but knowing that um I think that come came from a natural place as well I should be a I should say that because I don't think I was putting it on, but it be- but I became aware of um, it also being a personality that you can consciously build because you want people to see you a certain way. And again, I think that sort of that that comes back to um, early grief in lots of ways and what we were talking about earlier in, in that um, you have that like. USP or something in your social group like my parents died when I was young and it and somehow it makes you special and I think sometimes you can um you, you can carry on these these forms of like self-identity of that narrative of telling yourself your own story again and again so I felt in a lot of ways um grateful and relieved to have been able to get out of the band at a certain age even though I didn't want it to happen but to get out of it and to be able to see myself from that distance and sort of get in touch with certain realities um about myself and I think yeah I think that's that's definitely true um yeah I, I feel a bit horrible even thinking about that because it wasn't that it was it was I was generally happy to see people as well but you have that idea this is how people see me and I'm like being lovely to everyone even though maybe I don't need to be or something you know yeah you're just hyper aware of of, of that but it, it I mean it could have gone the other way you're like well I'm a cool guy in a band I can actually now be a dickhead to you in person but you weren't you chose to be a nice person well it does it does go a lot of the other way in a lot of cases yeah it does go the other way yeah so 
Yeah. And um, that sort of, that's all you ever really knew. You know, you started from nothing. You taught yourself how to play the guitar and then suddenly there you were sort of, I guess, a bit lost in a way. Like who, who, and how, how did you start thinking about who you would now be? Like, how did you th think about your identity and who you could be in the world again after that? Yeah, it was complicated. It was a complicated thing because we knew the band was ending, and we d we decided, oh, we're going to do these like final shows, and we're going to do it as a joint thing because it, you know, out of respect for the band, and also to be honest, everyone gets paid for the last shows, so they would be like, okay, we're going to have, you know, have a little bit of, you know, not to get jobs immediately or whatever. I hope this isn't too heavy, but I'm a conscious because I missed my mum's death. I wasn't there, and I've always had strange feelings about that. I remember thinking like, right, okay, at this end we're going to like really do it properly. So we had these gigs where the intention was we're going to end, this is going to signify an end in people that have loved the band's life and onto something else. And if you've got feelings, you can put them into this room. So all in those last gigs, you really had the sense of someone's, dad might listen to Maccabees with them and not there anymore or someone's thinking about a relationship or this is the end of, people realising they're not teenagers anymore or whatever and saying goodbye to the band in this space. And it was an incredibly powerful thing. And it was like, it was a death, you know, an end of lots of lives. And after that, I, did the only way I can explain it is I've, I felt like I was walking around all the time with the feeling of, um, you know, when you left a bag on a train, but you can't remember if you walked on mm. to the train with the bag or not. You know, that thing of like, I swear I had a bag. I think I had, did I, yeah. have a, did I walk over the bag? But like all day waking up like that, okay, like, you feel like something's missing. Like I've got, I thought, I'm not sure, like genuinely um, sort of confused. <laughs> but as you know, when you get past those feelings and you realise like, oh, I'm still actually alive and I'm fine and I'm in enjoying this coffee or whatever, you just realise like, oh, there's things in your day that you've enjoyed. I sort of used it as a way to maybe maybe actually feel the death of my mum, which I distracted myself from so completely. But also then I just thought, I'm going to say yes to everything, and I don't care if it means I am sticking letters up about the social club or whatever, or it put me in some sort of compromised situations or I have to get rid of that thing of like, oh, I'm in a band. And I'm just going to do them all and see where it takes me. And one of the things that happened was Greg James, who you obviously know is the BBC Radio Arm Centre, he got in touch and he knew I love cricket and he was like, I think we should do this show about cricket with Jimmy who plays for England and it'll be fun and we thought we we're only doing five episodes and it's still going now and the really interesting thing about cricket is because I write I end up doing a book I wrote Jimmy's book um doing all kinds of different things is like I felt as if all the passions that had maybe helped me from not processing the grief but had propped me up as if they were a living things kind of sort of came back to repay it all the people in cricket were so just like, come on, we'll get you on board and, and Yalla being a label and doing film scores. So I felt like um, it was a really lovely um, example. I'm sure loads of people have this in different ways of that those passions you have in things are never wasted. 
you might think they are for a second. You might think you poured your life into something that is like completely pointless, but they all they find ways of coming back to repay you. Yeah, they just played a different role in your life now. I guess these passions and and all that enthusiasm and zest that you put into those things from a really young age paid off in a different kind of way. And finally, you had that space to kind of reflect and breathe and obviously seek therapy and kind of start processing some of the stuff that you had, as you so brilliantly put again, you know, in the, throughout the book about you just like, you swallowed it down or you just shoved it back down because like, no, this is not a moment for whatever I'm feeling right now, get yeah. back down there. And then suddenly you had this time and space to, to do that. But also I should say yeah. with the band, like I think accidentally or otherwise it just couldn't have been more perfect really. And, and, and the way we ended it means that people do still think affectionately about our band and it's sort of cemented. We're, we're always going to be tied to each other and we're always, it's always going to be a positive thing because we because because of the way we did it and because of the sort of timeline that everyone was when when they were into the band so um yeah grateful for it really so i quickly just want to uh, which i mean i deem as a, a sort of glittery moment but um i kind of want you to talk about it in your own sort of way <laughs> but like the guilt that you obviously just mentioned around the day that your mum died you were you know obviously uh i mean you just you'd just seen an oasis gig the day before so you were buzzing on life mm -hmm. about that and then you were playing cricket when she actually died and you kind of have held on to that sort of guilt of not being there in that moment for a very long time um and then at some point you realize that you didn't need to can you talk to me about that a little bit that was interesting in in general to me but also like almost as a sort of novelistic device that the things that were as my mum's life was going one way and I was going into the world from there the night before my mum died I went to see Oasis and it was a huge deal for me bunked off school we like queued up from the morning got at the front like sort of visceral passionate moment of being a teenager and being in, in love with that band and I knew my mum was ill but I was so sort of carried away by the Oasis thing that I didn't really check in on her when I went back when I got home and then the next day I was so buzzing with the Oasis thing I, I was telling everyone about it and I stayed to play cricket and totally just sort of out of chance when I got home I it was like a couple of hours later than I would have been and she died and everyone else had been there and I've, yeah, I think silently to myself, I felt so guilty about that for decades because we put a lot of, I think we put undue currency maybe on that last moment someone's alive or something, don't we often? And that played around my head for a long time that I had prioritised those things maybe over my mum or that she hadn't seen me. But what happens in the book is, well, and in my life, because <laughs> that's a book. Um, <laughs> when I was going through that time in the Maccabees breaking up, and I was sort of putting the pieces back together a little bit, what ends up happening is I end up having going into therapy and having those conversations with with my dad that we maybe never had or that kind of thing, and my brothers a little bit. And I told him about that, and my dad said that the fact that I had come home that night when she was really sick 
and had been so overjoyed and sort of alive and thing he said that just for a second he could just see that the pain left her like her body she just sort of it evaporated from from her for a second because she was so happy that I was doing that and I think um yeah and that was just a really moving thing to hear so I sorry um so I think that <laughs> yeah sorry I, yeah I'm trying not to cry sorry. myself and say but um <laughs> But <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't. I shouldn't definitely not be the one who's crying right now. No, I was trying. Sorry, I was trying to on. deliver that without crying as well. Um, <laughs> but I was. So, I was so. Um, I was really uh, just. Yeah, I don't know. It, that was just felt like an extremely moving thing, and I. Just, I really wanted to put it in the book because, I think with when people are going through grief or have been through grief so often, what your head serves you as what your reality is isn't hasn't been the reality and we can make ourselves feel um really guilty or like we're shit people or whatever it is and actually it might be the total opposite so i think though that being able to communicate whether it takes you 20 years or not i think is really powerful thing sorry for making and you that, cry i think without realizing it uh, no <laughs> oh, i'm sorry for crying like because I think, um, I think because it's just so fresh, the words that you wrote in that book um, just hit a chord, and I think they will with so many people and have done because obviously the book's been out a while. Um, and I think from my perspective, as someone who is living with a terminal illness, um, I think, and this is where it hit, is that um, ultimately, sorry, yeah, don't don't feel like you have to say this in a hurry. <laughs> mm. I think ultimately what you have articulated is something that is so important to people who are ill and you have shone a light on a perspective that is never really talked about because ultimately so for me living with some with living with a terminal yeah. illness ultimately what I want what I dream of is to be able to die knowing that life carries on, knowing that there is life. And um, I think, and I'm so glad that you came to this realisation and that your dad helped you realise this, is that you gave her a gift that day by showing, you, by showing her that with or without her life would go on. And um, I mean, I dedicated my book to my nephew, um, Herbie, who's now two and a half because he came into my life when I need, really needed to know that life would carry on. And I think there's nothing more like <laughs> symbolic than a baby coming into your life and going, hey, I'm here now, it's all cool, yeah. I've got this. And I think your mum seeing her son like revel in life and doing things that he really truly adored would have been the best gift to kind of allow her to die. And it sounds like after years of pain and um, suffering potentially that would have been something incredible so I'm so glad that you put that in and you know I don't want to prescribe what the glitter is in your story but I really hope that you realize that that is one massive part of your story um that is a massive glittery part of your story yeah correct. I, I, I was trying so hard not to burst in tears when you're saying all those things and I, I've that's um that's so true what you've just said and I think um 
yeah it's so i think life's just really powerful how it can do that for you isn't it and i think um Mm -hmm. like you say that must have been what happened in her head is that oh he's gonna be okay yeah um yeah so yeah i think i think um and i think a lot a lot of um parents have said that to me after reading a book but they felt like um they they like they Res, like, responded to that bit especially because they felt like they wanted to know that their children were going to be okay yeah so I've been a little bit winded by that I don't actually know what else to say about it but I just feel like I really um so I'm so moved that you responded to it in that in that way and I feel like that was re- yeah, that's well no that, I'm grateful but do you know what as you'll know from writing your book just hearing you say that now that makes um writing the book worth it if only you the only person that had read it and as you probably got from writing your book as well like you have these moments of being like oh that was that was what it was for like even to just have this this conversation with you I know we're quite close because we met 10 years ago at Beach Break Festival (coughs) but um but but that's like what what the power of doing something like this is sometimes I think that's what makes me feel so glad I did this and so thank you for showing me that you're welcome. <laughs> and I'm sorry for uh, making you cry too. Um, not my intention whatsoever. Uh, but um, on a lighter note, I also just wanted to finally say that by the end of the book and by the end of, I guess, you know, you starting the tail enders and you being able to watch a cricket game and finally wanting England to win. <laughs> how did that, like, how did that suddenly make you feel? Okay, good. I'm glad you, you brought it back to cricket. I'm, I'm in safer territory here. Um, I feel like, um, no, that was, I've, that genuinely happened as well. But we'd done tail enders. England got us the World Cup final with this brilliant team um that had come from all different backgrounds um and they were really beautifully symbolic team that England team of a few years ago and they won the world cup in the most dramatic circumstances and we had done tail enders from the ground and just as they're about to win and when it's really close i've had this sen- this like sensation of being like incredibly simple and light and like oh my god i'm not secretly wishing that they lose and so it just registered with me, like, oh, that's a sign of that, that a uh, like something shifted, and a grief's been processed because I don't need that thing that must have served me in whatever ways in the past. And that's such a um, powerful feeling. And yeah, again, just just testament to what sport, especially, does for people. Sometimes I think is it just shows you where you are in your life, and. Um, I was really grateful for it just to like pointing out for me in that moment like oh yeah you've shed that skin and you're a new person um so yeah that was really beautiful beautiful moment yeah I cried then too (laughs) good (laughs) um cool yeah okay let's move on quickly then to um I want to hear the one sort of let and I know it's hard to just come up with one singular lesson that you've learned from either the turd or the glitter or the glittering of the turd but what's the one thing what's your one takeaway would you say what's the one takeaway god this is one i should have prepared isn't it (laughs) 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 i think the one takeaway i mean 
I'm happy to feed you a line from your book. <laughs> God, I'd love you to do that, please. Maybe I'm just out of lines. Um, well, do you know what I feel about that? I kind of feel that about my book too. Sometimes I'm like, I wrote some really fucking great things in that book, but can I pluck them out of my brain now and sound intelligent? Exactly. Yes. Go on, make uh, sound intelligent, please. Um, um, problems are privileges of existence. Oh. All of them just proof of living. Wow. God, that's so true as well. That was fucking beautiful. And and I mean, we we don't have to keep this bit in this podcast recording. I can can delete that, and then you can actually just say that line if you want. No, no, no. I think just leave. I think like just leave that exactly as it is. I think that was nice that you reminded me of that. Problems are privileges of existence. Mm. All of them approved. Yeah. So it's so true though, isn't it? Like if you're just you know, it's all just proof of being alive if you're feeling. And if you're hurting, yeah, just means you're alive. Yeah. And then one item, where if it's something tangible or intangible, can be an item of food, can be a piece of music. Am I allowed to have the whole of cricket? Yes. And you know, as I said. I think I'd be surprised if you didn't say cricket, so, yeah. I would like to have the whole of cricket for the reasons I just said a little bit earlier, where I feel like I'd spent a lot of my life alone in a sad cricket cave, watching county cricket with, like, about 40 old people, thinking, what exactly do I think I'm doing with my life? And then um, recently it showed me, like, oh, no. That's what I was doing in my life. I was processing all these feelings in this weird space. And I'm very grateful to the game for that. And I think it will always tell me something about my life. So, um, yeah, so I'd like to have the whole of cricket. If it needs to be a physical object, it would be some sort of tablet or laptop where cricket is always playing in my peripheries when I'm doing something, just so I can constantly check in on it. And it can check in on me. Love that. So to end things off, we're just going to listen to um, a voice note from one of the listeners, um, a girl called Hannah, who has glittered a turd herself. Glittering a turd. I got diagnosed with stage three breast cancer in February 2020. Being diagnosed with cancer, never a treat. But what was a real shitter was then about two and a bit weeks after that, the world were all told that we had to stay inside because there was a global pandemic. And I am a single person and live with my friend in London. But when I got diagnosed with cancer, my oncologist said that I obviously will have to be with family. And I decided to move back to Swindon and live with my mum and dad for over a year. But I remember my first treatment day, the whole world seemed quiet as my mum, my dad and me got in the car at six o'clock in the morning because my treatment was about to start at 9am in London and felt a little bit like 28 days later I won't lie in the car my mum on the motorway just starts zigging in and out because there's no cars on the on the road she's just swerving around going we're free and we had the best time and then for the next six months I had over 30 of the best road trips with my mum and dad because of the pandemic and cancer. 
Yay. That's oh so gosh. cool. So, That's much, so beautiful. What, because there's no one on the road? Sorry, they're swerving around going like, <laughs> That's so great. Ah, uh, I love that. I love what an opportune moment to just... Because that's never going to happen again. It's exactly. It's never going to happen again. Well, hopefully not. But Hannah, I'm so sorry. To, what an unbelievable apocalyptic couple of things happen at the same time. Um, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm so glad that um, out of something so shit. To, to have that moment in the car with your parents as well and probably sing some ridiculous songs together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's very cool. I love that. Thanks, Hannah, for sharing that with us. Well, I think let's wrap this up, Felix. Um, I'm sorry for the massive emotional roller coaster I've taken you on this morning, um, but also very grateful. I think lots of people will learn so much from your wisdom and um, outlook on things for sure. Chris, you know, I'm so um, happy to have had this conversation with you. I really like, loved it. So I, I, I wasn't prepared at all for how emotional that was going to get. So I'm sorry about um but, but I'm so so grateful that you've like like understood what I was really trying to get across when I wrote that, and I've um, just really really enjoyed talking to you. It's total joy. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. To round it off fully, let's cheers to life. I believe. I mean, your coffee is probably now cold. I've got a dreg. I've got a dreg. I've got a tiny dreg. Oh yes. Let's cheers it. Yes, let's cheers with our drinks. I've got some drinks of water. Cheers to life. Cheers to, life. Um, cheers to cheers cricket. To cricket. Cheers to you and cheers to your cheers, book. Cheers, Chris. Yay! <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I told you it was an emotional one, didn't I? I've just had to take a few breaths. Maybe you have to. I'm so thankful to Felix for speaking to me about his mum, about loss and grief and all that unprocessed stuff. Uh, I'm personally so fascinated by his ability and need to connect to his loss through sport and music. Honestly, if you, like me, know F all about cricket, his book is still such a good read and so worth a read so I do highly recommend it can I just also explain that when I talked about us hijacking showers at that festival when I met the McAfee's all those years ago that it wasn't as creepy and seedy as I made it sound uh, we hijacked the showers with stickers we didn't physically intrude on people's naked shower time um, felt the need to explain that and now that I have I'm off to go and listen to the Maccabees. Maybe some Eternal. Okay, if you enjoyed the episode, please tell everyone. Uh, please also rate my podcast, um, share it online, and also subscribe so you never miss a future episode. I do promise that I don't make every guest I interview cry. Okay, until soon. Goodbye. Oh.